What do we do now? Many Jews all over the world are asking themselves that question during these difficult times. Israeli Jews are asking, what do we do now? How do we rebuild our broken land, our shattered towns, our kibbutzim, our broken lives, our families, our souls, and our psyches? American Jews and other Jews are asking, what do we do now to rebuild our hope? The hope that symbolized the Zionist dream from its very beginnings, that sense of youthful optimism and vitality that has come under fire symbolically and literally in this Israel's 75th year. What does it mean to maintain hope in the Jewish future? And how do we do it? And how do we even begin? From the Religion News Service, this is Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred. And I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin, and we must agree that the tagline of both my column and the podcast, for those who want to be shaken and stirred, we never wanted to be shaken and stirred this way. The problem is not what should American Jews be doing now, or even what should the direction of Jewish life in America be? The problem is that there are almost too many answers to that question as we sort out what our Jewish priorities should be. That is the name of a new book that is about to see the light of day. Jewish Priorities, 65 Proposals for the Future of Our People, edited by David Hazoni and soon to be published by Wicked Son. We'll say more about that. I will say that I read the book several times, and I have found it to be amazing, unnerving, and challenging because it brings together a remarkable array of new essays from across the Jewish world. It is really an unprecedented, that word that we hear a lot, an unprecedented large-scale collection of timely and provocative essays. And what it wants to do is it wants to start a large global conversation about how we Jews think about our future as a people. This is what David writes. For generations, the Jewish agenda has been set in a top-down manner, and the diaspora institutional leaders and major philanthropists work together to establish our communal priorities, not just on the basis of what is truly needed, but also even primarily on the basis of what can be funded. That might have been necessary a generation or two ago, but in today's decentralized, sophisticated, and technologically empowered Jewish world, it is not a good way to engage our best minds in a process that challenges our assumptions and moves us forward as a people. I love this line. What we really need, and perhaps have needed for a long time, is a good old-fashioned intellectual food fight. It's a food fight, right out of the movie Animal House using ideas, concepts, texts. A very diverse group of authors we have here. They exist everywhere, from left to right, from secular and reform to Haredi, Gen Z, to our most venerated writers, Israelis, Americans, Europeans, Russian speakers, literary, rabbinic, scholarly, communal figures, journalists, online influencers, and activists. It is a thick soup. So David Hazoni is with us today. David is an award-winning editor, translator, and author. 
number of years ago, there was a spectacular journal called Azur. I still have copies of it in storage. It's one of those things I just can't part with. And David was its editor-in-chief. I found his book, The Ten Commandments, to be very influential. And that book was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. And he has edited anthologies on the work of Eliezer Berkowitz. And he has edited a volume of new essays on Zionism with his brother, Yoram Hazoni, and Michael B. Oren. He has a PhD in Jewish philosophy from the Hebrew University, and he lives in Jerusalem. David, it's so good to have you with us today. And I have to say, we are in the midst, oh my God, you are in the midst of a very, very difficult time. So welcome to Martini Judaism. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I am in Jerusalem. As we speak, there are sirens outside because of the latest of a constant string of emergencies that we're facing uh, on a day-to-day level. We are, as we're being recorded, we're now, it's now just a few days after the horrific uh, invasion of terror into our towns. Uh, We are on the brink of a major, major war. And to be uh, brutally frank, uh, we are, we over here in Israel are not lacking a sense of what do we do now? Um, because we have no choice about what to do now. We are about to launch a very significant and potentially historic uh, war, and it's something that nobody wants to do, and everybody feels united behind the decision and the need to do it. Um, It's a radical change from just only weeks ago when the country was deeply divided and many people were predicting the collapse, the end of the Jewish state. Today, in in the wake of something so horrible and with all of the obvious hard questions that will still need to be answered later on about how it happened and what led up to it, right now there is only one focus, which is to reestablish our country and to do so militarily. Let me check in with you personally on this. Okay. (laughs) How many kids do you have? We've talked about this in the past. I have 11 children, uh, nine from a previous marriage, two young ones at home. Um, Of those nine, five are currently in uniform. Um three of whom were called up, two were already in the army. Four out of those five will be seeing combat of one kind or another, in all likelihood. Um, Plus I have a sixth who volunteered on an ambulance the the first two days of this week and saw everything. I was reading what you wrote in the New York Post. As the hours pass, shock gives way to infinite anger. The rage is directed above all at Hamas and all those who support a bet fund armed defender show understanding for them, including those Palestinians in Gaza who support them and those preening self-righteous pro-Palestinian Westerners whose anti-Semitic veil is so thin as to be promiscuous, those who prattle on about genocide but have no qualms about enabling it under the banner of resistance. There's much more that you've said. 
this encounter with these modern-day Palestinian Einsatzgruppen hunting for children to shoot or kidnap. If there is evil on this earth, it is this. I've never seen such unity of purpose among Israelis. Far leftists who despise the current government are calling for the full reoccupation of the Gaza Strip. Suddenly there is talk of a unity government, judicial reform and its protests like everything else. Every other issue besides the war have fallen off the table. Hamas's unexpected success will be its undoing. David, do you remember when we first met? Because I've been trying to remember that for myself. Um, it, it was years ago. Uh, I, kn- I know that we met when I was in Washington in the 2018s. Um, but it might have been before that. One of the things I've appreciated about our relationship over the years is that we differ ever so slightly in our politics. I'm a centrist, sometimes center-left. Given circumstances, I can be nudged to the left or I can be nudged to the right. I recently said that one of the problems of being in the middle of the road is that you get hit by cars coming from both directions. (laughs) And you've been, over the years, one of the most articulate expositors of a center-right position in Jewish life, and yet we've always been able to have lunch or dinner together in Jerusalem and smile and give each other hugs. Can you talk about that journey? Was it a journey for you to get to that place, or were you always there? Well, the answer is both. Um, I, I definitely took a journey. When I first moved to Israel in 1994, I was Orthodox. I moved to a settlement in the middle of the West Bank called Eli. Um, today, you know, I, I, I get today I would not be considered either a settler or um, or a or an Orthodox Jew. But so there was definitely a journey. It, it actually um, one of the key moments on that journey was when probably two thousand seven ish. I heard a speech by Moshe Yalon, who at the time was uh, a former army chief of staff about to go into politics. Um, And he said that there's a saying among the paratroopers that if you get lost in the desert at night, if you're on a navigation desert at night kind of mission, and you get lost, the only thing you can do is to retrace your steps back to the last place you were where you knew where you were. And during the decades, you know, I've been on a journey to figure out what I really feel and what I really think as the world changes around me. And I've seen the Oslo Accords come and collapse. I've seen the Rabin assassination. I've seen... uh, 9-11 and the Iran deal and COVID and round after round of violence in Israel, the second intifada, of course, being the most recent horrible thing before this. Um, and every step of the way, you try to find what do you really think? What do you really feel? And at the bottom of it all, I feel a very profound commitment to my people and I very, feel a very profound commitment to my country. 
and um, and I know what a good Israel looks like, and how Israelis look when they're bringing out their best. Um, but I also know what our vulnerabilities are, and the same holds true for Jews everywhere. I, I feel like. I've been around the block so many times. I've been an American, I've been an Israeli, I've been Orthodox, I've been secular, I've been liberal, and I've been quite conservative. And um, that put me in a position to know an awful lot of people and to respect an awful lot of people from many different camps. Um, But it doesn't prevent me from also coming to my own conclusions and holding sharp opinions that in the last few days have grown quite sharp. It almost feels in the last several days, David, that so many of our more rightish opinions and aspects of our worldview have become vindicated. Well, um, some, for sure. Uh, the, uh, The fact is that you know, people like to say that the truth lies somewhere in the middle, but it's actually not true. The truth lies wherever it wants to lie. And we try to interpret our world and come up with right-wing views and left-wing views. And sometimes reality is far beyond what even the right-wingers say or far beyond what even the left-wingers say. Um, it was believed for many years that uh, that Israel's policy, and and I'm and yes, I will talk about Prime Minister Netanyahu because he has been the leader of our country for a very long time, and he believed, and I believed, that a policy that leads to quiet is the best thing we can hope for. Um, and he was very good at avoiding major wars. That was basically his greatest strength. But today, Israel opens up to reality that. All this time, we've been taken for a ride, and that um, a terror organization that we believe to have been deterred was anything but was simply plotting a massive calamity on our people. Um, so we're all kind of groping here in the in the dark, trying to figure out what we think and what we feel. Um, But there's one thing that does come to mind very powerfully, and that is the power of united Jews. Um, In Israel, we are in a process of a unity that has been forced on us, that we no longer have the luxury of of radical partisanship and disagreement. and what will emerge, what I believe has already emerged, just from the, the, everything from the, the way we've come together and helping each other and donations and support and you know dropping all previous disagreements in order to focus on this. It's an immensely powerful thing, much more powerful than the weapons that we're using in our military. And I ask myself... Imagine if the diaspora were this united. Imagine what power Jews around the world could really wield to protect themselves and to better their their world if we weren't so busy um, focusing on other Jews 
and how different they are from us and how, you know, how, and, and, and falling apart. And that's kind of what has been going on for many years and generations even. And, um, and I ask myself, you know, there is a big battle ahead. It's not just a battle against what are the issues, assimilation, and it's a battle against forces of anti-Semitism that have really begun to rear their heads, and they're conflicting forces, and there are many of them, and Hamas is really just one more force of vicious genocidal anti-Semitism, and the only difference, in my view, between them and other kinds of anti-Semites is how much power they've amassed and how much license they gave themselves to to act. Um, so I think the Jews united in purpose, first of all, can defend themselves. Second of all, they can have much more serious, deep explorations about what it means to be a Jew. Is it about values? Is it about ancient stories, shared narratives, practices, texts? Is it about our homeland? All of the it could be all of the above, but these are questions we have to address because the old answers will no longer serve us beginning now. You and I are almost the same age. You're a little bit younger than me. I wonder aloud what it is that would give young Jews in particular a source of Jewish pride. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think that there have been a few generations in which the the you know Jews had escaped very difficult conditions in in Europe almost entirely in Europe um and really just wanted a land of opportunity and a place where they can be accepted and a place where they can be seen as equals or at least given the opportunity to build their own independent wealth and power and prosperity and freedom and that came at a price it came at a price of of encouraging fitting in and not being what was the word they used um, uh, promiscuously Jewish? No, it was a different word. Um, not being obviously publicly Jewish. And one of the most amazing essays in Jewish priorities is the one by Omri Kaspi, the former. NBA star, um, who wrote about his period in the NBA and how he grew up being completely secular and not really caring about Jewish practice and found himself sort of adrift and anchorless during his years in the NBA. And he began bringing, you know, taking on, him, on Jewish practices, kashrut, and uh, putting on tefillin, and... Um, and he found that that the people around him, well, he found two things. First of all is that the people around him respected it, respected him for being conspicuous. That was the word I was looking for, for being conspicuously Jewish. They said, that's cool, that's your thing. And the second thing he learned was that it made him a better basketball player, that having the Jewish anchor in his life made him psychologically more grounded more certain of who he was and more proud of who he was and able to focus and, and play better. And, and he goes on to write, this, this stands in complete contrast to what 
so many generations of American Jews have told themselves. So I think that number one is we have to get rid of the myth that being conspicuously Jewish is somehow against your interests, because on a profound level, it is never in your interest to deny who you are and to, and to deny it publicly. Um, that's before we get to what they have to gain from delving into their Jewish identity. I mean, we have so many thousands of years, so many centuries upon centuries of wisdom, of amazing stories and texts. And, you know, I'm a student of Jewish texts, so obviously I'm a little biased, but there's an infinite sea of learning that can be achieved. And it doesn't obligate you to change your lifestyle. That's something that's your own choice. But but it's just fascinating and amazing. And to be ignorant of it is is to cut yourself off. Um, there is a fascinating people, an amazing people that is the Jewish people that you can be a part of. And yes, obviously, a lot of them are Israelis, but not all. Um, there is a fascinating language. So much of new Jewish cultural creativity in life takes place in the Hebrew language. Um, there, there are so many Jewish communities around the world to learn about and know about and connect with. Um, so one, you know, what is Jewish pride is, first of all, it's a decision to, uh, if I may quote uh, Adam Bellow, the publisher of Jewish Priorities, he writes in his um, afterward that he is of a generation that has come to the conclusion that, that they have assimilated enough. And now it's time to turn back towards our identity and who we are. And I think that, that many young Jews sense that they have assimilated enough, but they don't know what to do next. They don't know what to do about it. Um, and the truth is that there are many, many, many amazing things they can do about it tomorrow. Um, does that answer your question? Absolutely. David, it's almost <laughs> as if we got what we wanted. And the assimilation project is so antique that no one even uses that word anymore. It's not even about assimilation. One of the things that I've noticed and that I've written about is how we've assimilated worldviews and philosophical ideas such as individualism and consumerism that are at odds with what it means to build a Jewish community. Now, look, you've, you've lived in Israel for quite some time, and you go back and forth between America and Israel. I've seen you in both places. So can you help me figure out, help uh, all of us figure out, how do Jews in Israel see things differently from the way that American Jews or Jews in other diaspora communities see them? How, what, what's, how is the worldview different that's a, there, there are about three or four or five things, so let me try to go through them all. Um, first of all, these two communities um, were, you know, half of Israel is Ashkenazi of European descent, which means that a century ago, uh, that half, all their ancestors were living the same lives as the ancestors of, of American Jews. Um, and so for that half, it becomes a, a, it's all about the different experiences that the two 
communities have gone through in, in between, where whereas one uh, immigrated to a land of freedom and opportunity, and the other immigrated to a land of swamps and hostility and needed to build a sovereign state of their own. But there's also the other half of Israel, which is uh, the Sephardic half, or Mizrahi, as we say here, um, who spent centuries living under Muslim rule. And, you know, Jewish life, you're absolutely right that Jews have, not only in America, but everywhere and always, have been exposed to other worldviews and have picked and chosen the parts of them they want to internalize and make Jewish. Um, But that that, uh, combination of descendants of European and descendants of uh, uh, Islamic world Jews, um, meanwhile, both halves inherited a tremendous tradition of Jewish texts and Jewish lore and rabbinic thought that, you know, Ashkenazim and Sephardim have only separated 500 years ago, but we had a couple of thousand years before that of development. Um, and, and you know, these are all obvious things, I guess, but the, the outcome of it all is that American Jews desperately want to see the world a certain way and a, and a world to be a certain way. And they they have developed a value system that I, I, I want to say this very carefully. It's not a coincidence that the liberal demo, democratic with a small d value system that most American Jews hold is the one that makes Jews most likely to survive in America. It protects Jews. It protects minorities in general. It protects. Uh, Everyone, equality and the rule of law, and and you know, th- th- but this is something that that Jews didn't have in Europe, and now they have the opportunity to to build and prosper. And Jews in Israel have a different menu or a different totality of what are the needs for survival for as a sovereign state in the Middle East. Um. In which has been very hostile at times, and is very hostile right now, uh, and um, yeah, that's going to affect you. That's going to affect your value system. And yet, at the same time, there is this belief on both sides of the ocean that we're a single family, and that our heritage goes back much farther than a few decades, or or even a century and a half. Our our history is a history of being a single people that went through many different forms of life and many different forms of hell. Um, and, um, and, and I think that the, the reaction that we see today, this week, among American Jews is absolute testimony to the fact that we are a single family and we are a single people. And we've been pushing the boundaries of how far we can drift apart and how far we can disagree. Um, but at a moment of, of acute crisis, 
we're there for each other. And uh, that's how Israelis feel right now, by the way. We, we, we feel tremendous support, both from global Jewry and also from the United States of America. We'll be right back with David Hazani, the editor of Jewish Priorities, 65 Proposals for the Future of Our People. Hi, once again, welcome to Martini Judaism. For those who want to be shaken and stirred, I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salk, and we're here with David Hazoni. We started talking about the situation in Israel in which he and his family are deeply enmeshed and embedded. His book, Jewish Priorities, 65 Proposals for the Future of Our People, lays out a philosophical and programmatic agenda for the Jewish future. Amazing essays in this book, and I fell in love with many of them, but I just want to ask you, David, which essays challenged you the most and brought new thinking into your mind? Well, there, there are so many. It's like asking um, you, of your children, <laughs> who do you love the most? I love them all. And there are almost <laughs> as many kids as there are chapters in this book. Um there are few that really I found unbelievably powerful, um, and they come from surprising places. Um, I think that one that really struck me was Anat Wilf's essay called Zionism is Therapy, which talks about her experience teaching, uh, teaching a course at Georgetown University on early Zionist thought, in which one of the students said to her, this is this is like months of therapy, this class. And what she discovered was that Zionism in its origins was in fact a therapeutic response to a therapeutic problem of exile and of Jewish life in exile at the time. And that we need, you know, we talk about Jewish pride, but Zionism was simply a movement of Jewish pride that ended up with a very clear programmatic response to the conditions of exile, which was to create a sovereign state. But it it begins in asking why is our why are our lives so hard in in the diaspora? Uh, a second essay, which comes from a completely different place, is um, uh, Eli Pale, who is the publisher of Mishpacha magazine. Um, and the director of something called the Haredi Institute for Public Affairs. And he wrote an essay called Tzedakonomics, which uh, the thesis of which is you can't understand what ultra-Orthodox life really is about until you dispense with the myths of radical economic dependency on rich people and taxpayers and recognize that there's a really fascinating economic model that involves a tremendously high degree of volunteerism and a tremendously high degree of charitable giving. I think it was something like 70% of ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel donate money to charitable causes, despite the fact that you're talking about people who don't have a lot of money. And he talks about how that works. So I thought that was just, just fascinating. 
Um, a third essay comes from Lizzie Savetsky, who is a well-known fashion blogger and uh, influencer who uh, has recently become very outspoken on issues of anti-Semitism and Zionism. Um, her essay is, is called Thou Shalt Be Beautiful, about beauty as a Jewish value, um, which is very counterintuitive for some of us, um, and talked about her life growing up in Texas uh, and her two guiding lights in Jewish history being Queen Esther and Bess Meyerson, and why that's important, why investing in beauty is important as a Jewish purpose. Um, they're, just, they're also essays, they're just a lot of fun to read. Uh, Neri Zilber's piece on why Tel Aviv is the true capital of the Jewish people um, will probably raise a, a few eyebrows and get some attention. Um, uh, and then some very serious ones, like Isabella Tabarovsky, who writes about the Soviet sources of modern anti-Zionism uh, and how so many of the words that are hurled at Israel and of the structures they are the direct product of strategies deliberately undertaken by the Soviet propaganda machine in, in the Cold War and simply that continued on after the Soviet Union fell. So there are many, I, I, you know, there, there's so many and they're amazing and uh, come from so many different directions that everyone's going to have different essays from mine that are their favorites. Um, and, uh, and that was the purpose. The, whole, the real purpose is to create a conversation that's both aspirational and that takes place around a table where, of the entire Jewish people. And that's why we're also doing all these events, because you know, we're, we're launching it with a big full-day event in Philadelphia on October 22nd, and then in New York and Palo Alto, Jerusalem, London, um, and more and more. And uh, people who would like to see the full uh, roster of events can come to jewishpriorities.com. Um, but the reason that we're doing all these events is because the purpose is to have a real conversation. And so these are multi-author events where they're coming and and people can come and in person see that conversation live and think about these issues and clash and disagree. And, you know, I, one of the things that I said early on was our biggest problem is that whenever we talk about coming together, we talk about coming together on the things we agree on. And that number of things we agree on isn't so high. <laughs> it's, uh, but a true family is one that comes together on things they don't agree on. That, that you go to the Thanksgiving dinner with your extended family, even though some of the people there are people you can't stand, but because they're your family, you're there. And I wanted to create something that demonstrates that, that shows it through example, that we can all be there and, and have that disagreement um, together. There's so much talk, David, in the Jewish world and in the general academic and cultural and political world about cancel culture. And there's no one being canceled in this volume. There is such richness and diversity. And the idea of having everyone together at the table is such a powerful one. So, for example, you have Enat Wilf, which is a full-throated Zionist voice. And then you've got Shaul Magid, who essentially would end 
what he perceives to be a Zionist monopoly over Jewish discourse. And he wants to affirm exile, Galut, and he actually draws on Haredi, on so-called black hat sources. Is there any merit in that argument? Look, I think that any well-grounded argument that has something positive to say, that's not just an anti-statement, should be heard out. Okay, and Shaul Magid and I fundamentally disagree, but he wants to make an argument for the for diaspora. He uses the word exile freely. Um, and that there were good things there. And I don't want to it's very easy for me just to just to talk to full-throated Zionists. But I think that I can learn from people who, are, who come in good faith and bring a lot of knowledge to the table. And I think we can all learn from each other when there is good faith and when there is real, serious knowledge behind it. So um, I'm proud to have Shul Magid in this volume. Uh, somebody said to me recently... Can you even begin to imagine an American version of this? Like where like, you know, pro-Trump and Democrats and progressives all have essays in the same book to, do, to take a snapshot of America. And maybe, you know, maybe somebody will, but the difference is that we, we've done it before. Okay, what I'm tapping into is this latent, deep down, you know, we've had the Talmud for so many centuries. What is the Talmud if not a collection of our disagreements? Okay, and and of the full spectrum of Jewish thought, we, we've always believed that there's such a thing as dispute for the sake of heaven, um, and um, and there's a, here's another great essay from the book by uh, Professor William Kolbrenner from Barilan University, which is called "Argue Like a Jew," and his thesis is that. When Jews, the Jewish tradition of argument is very, very different from what in the outside world is known as a debate. Uh, a, a debate is a, is a place where you have to, where the goal is to win, is to to crush your opponent and to come aside, come out victorious. It's a it's a battle um, to the argumentative death. And his claim is that that's not a Jewish tradition at all. That the Jewish approach to disagreement is, uh, to use the phrase in Hebrew, to disagree for the sake of heaven, meaning you put out your positions, but you remain respectful because you understand that we're all in this together and that we all have to move forward through history as a family together. And what I love about this book is that all of these writers, you know, from very far left to very far right, from very secular to very orthodox, all of them agreed and accepted this central premise of the exercise, which is that maybe just once we can bracket out our radical disagreements and sit around the table and put it on the table, the things we really feel and think, and our points of disagreement, because maybe this is a place that we desperately need. And the response was amazing. I mean, the, the reason we have 65 essays is because people kept saying yes and we kept okay let's let's try to come fr- have this angle and this approach and you know somebody promoting the land of Israel and somebody you know and and so many people agreed 
to do this happily. Um, and the and the response even before publication, as we speak now, the book hasn't come out yet. It's it comes out on October twenty fourth, but even the response of organizations and uh, uh, major institutions has been one of immediate excitement. You know, as if this is something that we've been waiting for. And um, I don't know. It 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 just seems like. It felt like the right moment even before the, the the current madness that we're living through. And it feels even more so now. One of the things I appreciated a lot in the book are the several essays on food and the <laughs> sensuality of uh, Jewish living. Look, I want to ask you a question about the publishing company on the subject of an open conversation and a a large table. The publishing company is Wicked Sun, and full disclosure, my own book on the American Jewish future will be published by them in January, so I'm p- paying very close attention to how this is unfolding. A Wicked Sun, of course, is the brainchild of Adam Bellow, a literary figure of no small merit, whose father was the late, great, iconic American Jewish literary figure, Saul Bellow. Where does the title Wicked Son come from, and why does it resonate? Well, as Adam, as Adam tells me, um, it comes from, obviously, the Passover Seder, from the Haggadah. Um, there are the four sons, right? The wise one the simple one, the one who doesn't know how to ask a question, and the wicked one. Um, the wicked one asks very targeted, pointed questions, and he's not treated very well in the Haggadah itself. But, um, and I've heard this in the name of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, I don't know that I'm that this is an accurate attribution, but there is a sense that the wicked son, he's at the table, and perhaps there is a, another son who isn't at the table, who's already gone. The wicked son is the one who, who doesn't accept on face value the, the dictates of tradition. He doesn't accept on face value the mandatory nature of Jewish law and practice, but he's at the table and he's asking questions. And that, and, he, and Adam felt very much an identification with with him. This is a, a publishing house that's only, I guess, two three years old. I, I've between uh, between COVID and the current war, I've lost all ability to gauge time, and I apologize. Um, but um, it's brand new, and it comes out of a of a profound sense that that we need new Jewish books. We need new Jewish thinking. We need new Jewish stories. We need books and stories and thinking that emerge from the experiences of our own time. And uh, it's really um, it's really an amazing effort. It's an amazing thing. So, you know, books by people like Chen Mazig or you or, uh, you know, uh, David Bernstein's Woke Antisemitism or Rabbi Amiel Hirsch really an awful lot of people who who are um, just very very proud Jews 
very many of them are Zionists, not all necessarily. It's not a, a, a politically oriented publishing house in the sense of left and right politics. Um, but it is very pointedly assertive and proud and Jewish. And um, and I'm really proud to have been involved. He, he Adam invited me to help uh, recruit books um, early on. And uh, then he invited me to uh, to create an anthology that's coming out now. And, uh, you know, it's it's an amazing, amazing. And I, I have to note, it's not just Adam. He has a partner whose name is David S. Bernstein, because there are so many David Bernsteins these days. Um, we're, and, uh, and Adam and David have just done an incredible job uh, identifying a real, real need in the Jewish world for proud Jewish voices, including Israeli voices, including uh, Zionist thought. And it's not just nonfiction, it's also fiction they're publishing. Um, there's a, so there's a literary side to it. And uh, I'm in awe of the work that they've done and uh, feel very proud to have had the very privilege to have been able to be there from the outset. David Hazoni has written a new book, edited a marvelous collection of essays, visions of the Jewish future, Jewish priorities, 65 proposals for the future of our people published by wicked sun coming out in a few weeks. Based on the sheer number of book events, you probably live within a time zone or so of one of those events, and I hope that you'll go. At the risk of introducing you, David, to a pun on your name or <laughs> an interpretation of your name, Chazoni literally means, as you know, my vision. And you've articulated not your vision, that would have been easy, but a collection of visions of the Jewish future. We have a very messy current moment in the Jewish world, and it's going to be a very messy future. And many of us believe, bad pun coming, that there is something messianic in the messy, <laughs> and perhaps we would not want it any other way. I invite you to follow my regular column of the same name, Martini Judaism, on Religion News Service, religionnews.com. Our producer is Jay Woodward, and we get production assistance from Julia Windham. Martini Judaism is a Blue Jay Atlantic production for Religion News Service. Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred, is available on Spotify, Google, Apple, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts, and you would really help us. If you download our podcast and leave us a five-star rating, but my dear friend David, I would not want this moment to pass without sincere wishes and prayers for your safety, the safety of your children, the safety of Am Yisrael and Medinat Yisrael, our people and our state. These are wretched, wretched times. But perhaps the late Leonard Cohen was partially correct when he said there's a crack in everything that's how the light gets in there has been a crack in the jewish people but the light that shines from the jewish people the light of torah the light of our woven together hopes and dreams that is 
shining through. And we will get through this. We will get through this. I send you a hug, my friend. Thank you so much. <laughs>